Today's episode is brought to you by Search Press. For 50 years, Search Press has delighted crafters with books on knitting, crochet, sewing, quilting, fiber crafts, painting, and drawing. If you want to try a new craft or improve your skills, Search Press has detailed instruction books for you. If you would like to learn more about selling Search Press books in your store or on your website, check out their website at searchpressusa.com. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now here's the show. episode 162 of the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals where you can strengthen your creative business, stay up to date on industry news, and build connections within our supportive trade association. Check it out at craftindustryalliance.org. Today on the show, we're talking about fostering creativity through daily practice with my guest, Wendy Chen. Wendy is best known for her 2016 work, The Year of Knots, in which she learned a new knot every day for a year. Her work ranges in size from a knot that can fit in the palm of a child's hand to majestic room-size installations that are sought after by private collectors. Following long careers at Apple, and as owner of legendary music shop Aquarius Records, she launched her studio in 2015. Select clients include IBM, the National Geographic Society, and Curring Group. And her work has been covered by Wired, The New York Times, and Martha Stewart. Wendy's book about her work was published by Abrams in 2019. Wendy Chen, welcome. Thank you, Abby. I'm so glad to be here. I am super excited to talk to you and um, talk about <laughs> daily practice and the value of doing that. So I'd love to start a little bit about by talking a little bit about your background and where you grew up and um, sort of where all this creativity came from. And um, so I'm wondering, I know your uh, your father was a woodworker. Where, what, where did you grow up and what did your parents do for work? Oh, so I'm a child of immigrants. Um, my parents were both born in China, um, and I was born in Taiwan. But by that time, my father had already joined the U.S. Army. So I actually grew up sort of a, a, a middle-class U.S. Army brat, as we call ourselves, and lived in many places around the U.S. My father was sort of a, yeah, weekend warrior. He would make things out of wood. And my grandmother, who I'm named after, was always known as the creative one in the family. She was really into petit point and needlepoint and embroidery and painting. So when you say, like, where did all that creativity come from? I think that it probably came from them. But frankly, as a child of, of Chinese immigrants, creativity was never encouraged in my family. You know, my parents fully expected that I was going to become a scientist, a doctor or a lawyer. <laughs> and um, so I'm sort of the black sheep in the family in that I chose a very unconventional path in life. Um, did you have siblings? I do. And my brother joined the U.S. Navy and chose a very traditional path. Okay. All right. Interesting. So, um, yeah. so you were sort of like expected to do something more, um, more traditional, more high income earning, um, probably, um, uh, when you, uh, went to, to college and, and what did you go to college to study? 
I studied filmmaking in college. I knew I wanted to do something vaguely creative, but I didn't know what that was going to be. And I actually didn't stick with it. For me, making film at that young age, all I could see was either going to work in the industry in Hollywood or asking for money all the time in order to make my own work. Neither of those were appealing to me. So I actually jumped into the music scene. Uh, For me in my 20s, which was the 90s in San Francisco, record stores were the center of the community. If you were into music, record stores were where you went to make friends and find your next favorite record and find out which show we were all going to go to that night. So it was absolutely the coolest thing that I could possibly thought I could possibly do. And so I started working in record stores. And so that's what led you to Aquarius Records, right? Is that, was that the path? Yeah, I started out in college radio, you know, at the college that I went to. And then working in record stores was, I mean, it made so much sense. It was a way to make money, but also a way to be completely immersed in the thing I was most passionate about. So Aquarius Records, is was the oldest independent record store in San Francisco. You know, it started in 1969. And by the time I showed up um, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was already sort of legendary. And so I sort of helmed that store. At some point, I purchased it from the original owner and moved it to the hip neighborhood in San Francisco and, you know, kind of helped it along its way. Wow. So what are some of the things that you learned doing that? Because it wasn't as though you were just working there as an employee or even, you know, managing it, you bought the store and relocated it to where like the happening, you know, neighborhood was. So you, I mean, you really like significantly impacted the final chapter of that store's life. Um, So I'm guessing there was a lot of business lessons in that period for you. Oh, business and more. Yeah. yeah. The, the first two things that come to mind, the two main things that I got from Aquarius were one, you know, being so immersed and in, in promoting and supporting and loving this music. You know, I ended up becoming friends with, you know, most of the musicians that I loved. Um, you, you know, musicians are, are, are work, you know, are crazy artists. They make the most esoteric, you know, in some cases, strange, odd sounding music because it's their sort their form of bliss. Right. So go. So what that taught me was that anything can be art and any and if you pay attention to it, it there's, you know, so much profound um, depth of experience that's possible in the listening of it, in the making of it. So it sort of, for me, it showed me that anything can be art and taken seriously. Yeah. Gosh, I love that. A hundred percent. Even knots. Yeah. Even knots can be art, which we're going to get Even to knots. later. But yeah, yeah, that's a fantastic lesson. A hundred percent. My brother is a musician and I think um, when I think about it, I, I feel like I did get that lesson from him. Um, and yeah. that's a great, that's a great lesson. The other thing that I really learned from standing behind the counter at my record store for so many years was that I really love creating the environment in which people feel welcome and comfortable and free to dive into what they're passionate about. So creating the environment of the record store, um, was, that was a learning, it was a lesson for me that I just, it's an, it's a, it's my comfortable place in creating that kind of environment. And especially in terms of the record store, you know, it was about creating an environment where women felt comfortable coming. And that was, you know, the world of rock and punk and heavy metal is really not very welcoming or has not in the past been welcoming to women. So it was really important to me that I make a place where women didn't feel like they were stupid or they had to follow their boyfriends around or they didn't know enough about music to feel 
feel comfortable there. Right. So the creating of the environment is something that has stuck with me since then. And you know, now a lot of the work that I make is sort of site-specific, immersive environments. And I think that there's a through line there okay. that I didn't really realize till later. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's great. Um, all right. And so why did Aquarius Records close? Well, I left Aquarius in 20, I think it was 20, 2003, um, because I really wanted to just see how the rest of the world lived. I'm, I'm very omnivorous when it comes to life. And it hung on. I sold the record store to two of my staffers and they hung on, hung on for another 15 years. Oh. And then what, what with the issues with small business retail happening all over the country now, they just kind of became victims of of that, unfortunately. Okay. And so they closed a couple of years ago. Got it. Okay. But you left before then. Okay. Got it. So, I did. right. So you left and what was your next job at Apple or was there an in-between period? There was an in-between period. I didn't know what I wanted to do next. And frankly, because I had been my own boss for so long at the record store, I had never, you know, had to write a resume. I had never had to articulate what my skills were in the workplace. You know what I mean? So I had no idea what I was going to do next. So I took a year off and had a great time um, working on local political campaigns and doing various other things. And it was enough for me to start being able to articulate the things that I enjoyed doing and the things that I love, that I am good at doing things like being organized, creating environments, um, creating a sense of excitement and, basically being organized. <laughs> okay, got it. And so and so how did you find your way to Apple? Was there just like a job opening that you responded mm-hmm. to? Did you have a friend there or what happened? Yeah, I was looking at the job boards. You know, when people always say, oh, they wish they could work somewhere, I always say, well, go look at the job boards because they probably are looking for somebody like you. I had been an Apple fanatic since my dad brought home an Apple IIe when I was a sophomore in high school in like 1983. And so I had owned every iteration of all of the Apple computer models and and then the laptop. So I was such a super fan that I thought that would be the coolest thing if I could work at Apple. So I looked at their job boards. And at this time, iTunes had just started and they really needed music experts to help build iTunes in its early days when it was just a music store. So that's how I found myself there. You're like, I know all about music. I just worked at, I owned a record store. Right. Okay, great. And so you, that's what you did. You worked and, and helped them build iTunes. Yeah, I was a producer, production manager, curator, editor there for eight years. I spent five years at iTunes during that period of, of insane growth where we added TV and movies and podcasts, iBooks, um, iTunes U, all the different media types that make up the iTunes we know today. And then my last three years at Apple, we had just released iPhone um, and with it, the App Store. So I jumped over to the App Store and became the managing editor there. Me and my team um, and my colleagues there decided what made it to the front page of the, of the App Store every week. And in doing so, we had to invent a set of standards by which apps and games are um, evaluated as to whether they're good or not, what makes a good app, what makes a bad app, that kind of thing. So this had never been done before. So that was really fun for my last three years. And I know you've said that you, you're you a natural curator. And yeah. did you feel like that was kind of scratching that itch for you? Like, was that, you know, pulling on that 
piece of your mind being a curator? Editing and curating apps and games at the App Store felt so exciting because it was very fresh. These were new media types. We didn't really have the concept of what a mobile application could do or what it should be or what fantastic things it could be. So for me, it just felt like we were at the forefront of new technology. And I feel the same way now about virtual reality, where we're in the infancy of what's possible. And it's incredibly exciting to me. Yeah, totally. So um, so when was it time to leave Apple? Because I feel like you're a person of reinvention, right? Like you've yeah. had these chapters almost in your life and you're in a third one now um and i do wonder whether there'll be a fourth one or, an, or a fifth one i'm interested to hear what you think about that but um but what led to the closure of the apple chapter that's a great question yeah it was a i had been there for about eight years and sort of the fatigue of working at a large corporation had just started getting to me plus the commute was getting worse you know it was starting it started out 45 minutes each way and then it was more than an hour and then i was you know before i knew it i was spending all my time in a car on a shuttle bus and so one day in a sort of low moment i actually just had a realization and i realized that i had spent my career at the record store and my career at iTunes and at the app store curating and supporting and evangelizing other people's creativity. And I had never focused on my own. And it was, it was quite a moment for me. And I think I gave notice within a month after having that realization. Yeah, that's so interesting because I recently had Melanie Fallick on the show talking about her book and that was a realization that she had as well. <sighs> Oh, my God. When I read that, I love Melanie. And when I read that in the introduction to her book about how she looked down at her hands yeah. and started crying, I started crying when I read I it. Think I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's a moment that a lot of people can really relate to. I know my sister-in-law told me that she also started crying when she read that. So mm -hmm. I think there's probably a lot of people out there. Who felt the way that she did? Um, okay, so Apple chapter came to a close. Um, and then um, I know when you left, you again weren't 100% sure what was going to come next. Um, and so you took a bunch of classes, um, kind of creativity related classes. Yeah, you know, I had been, this was kind of when blogging was still going strong and Instagram had just started. And I began, began to feel really envious. I, I would see like all these pictures online of the beautiful woodworking that people are doing and beautiful objects that people are making. And I just started feeling sort of palpably envious. So um, not knowing what form my creativity was going to take, but knowing that I wanted to prioritize my creativity, I just decided to take classes. And, you know, classes are kind of a dime a dozen now, but six years ago, you kind of had real, still had to really look to find classes. So I took more than a dozen in like any medium that I was interested in. So stone carving and ceramics and LED lighting and <laughs> just everything, weaving and dyeing and printmaking, all of it. And even the classes that I, where I didn't love it, I, it, I, was glad that I took the class because it, you know, I could check it off of my list that it was more information. Knowing what you don't like is just as important as knowing what you do like doing, I think. Yeah. And did you, by the way, save money for this period of unemployment? I mean, I think yeah. there's a lot of people who are like, yep. 
wow, that sounds like a great time of quitting your day job and just taking some art classes. But then they're like, wait a minute, how am I supposed to pay for health insurance and, um, you know, paying for my rent and all my bills and expenses? And so can you just talk a little bit about like the plan in between there? Yeah, that's a great question because everyone's situation is different, right? Some, I don't have children. Some people do. Some people, you know, didn't have a high paying job like I did. So everyone's circumstances are different. So what I can do is share what I did. So I sat down and looked at my finances and I decided that since I didn't know what I wanted to do next, I needed to buy myself some time. And so I sort of randomly, you know, thought, well, maybe a year will be enough. So I set aside out of my savings enough for just bare bones, essential living expenses. So the rent and food, basically. And I set that aside. And the reason that I think it's smart that I did that was because I didn't want to be drawing from my savings every month. Because at the end of, you know, month one, you're, you know, your next, you won't have figured out your next thing yet. And you don't want to have to ask yourself that question. Oh, is this leading somewhere? Have I discovered what I'm going to do next yet? You don't want to have to do that. 12 times over the course of a year because it's you don't want to ask yourself that question because transitions take time. So my point was that I set aside enough money so that I'd only have to do it once. And then I just didn't question it again. I had bought myself this time. I know that not everybody can do that. Hopefully, though, folks can set aside enough money for maybe it's three months or maybe it's six months or maybe there's I think the overriding point here is that if you can set aside some time just for you then it's going to be a really fertile time. And it's the time that you allow yourself to look at you and what you want, might want to do with your life next. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wonderful. Okay. All right. So um, I know that you had been collecting knot books since you were a teenager. Um, and so knots were a part of your life or sort of in the back of your mind, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I wondered what the attraction was even when you were a kid to knots. Yeah, that's such a good question. And no one's ever asked me that before. Thank you, Abby. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's because I grew up as a kid in the 70s outside New York City. Um, And so we all know sort of those 70s graphics, um, 60s and 70s graphics, those big, bold graphics, very line-based graphics are very familiar to me. So they've kind of been... I think imprinted a little bit on, in, on my aesthetic brain. In fact, one of the bodies of work that I'm most excited about now are called my circuit boards. They're these rope wall hangings that I make, and they are literally influenced by the New York City subway map that was made by the very famous, influential Italian graphic designer, Massimo Vignelli. So that was the New York City subway map in the 70s. It's basically imprinted on my brain. Anyway, so when I started noticing that I was really interested in lines. And then I started noticing I was really interested in knots. The two kind of went together in a way. I've always been really interested in graphically appealing design and also the functional. And that's exactly what knots are, right? The line takes a journey. It enters the knot, does something inside the knot, and then exits the knot. And most knots were invented to be functional, hardworking objects in occupations in the world. So that sweet spot of the aesthetic and the functional is, is, is my sweet spot as well. And knots just really embody that. Right. I'd like to take a minute now to hear from our sponsor, Ann Woodcock of Search Press. Hi, I'm Ann Woodcock from Search Press. And Ann, what are you thinking about for crafts in 2020? 
in 2020, so we're thinking about embroidery, and we're thinking about it a lot. Um, embroidery is one of the crafts that is really booming in popularity right now. And I think it's booming because it just celebrates that quiet contemplation and mindfulness that you get from doing a craft. But it's so therapeutic. You use your hands, and your results are so immediate and beautiful. At Search Press, we publish a wide range of embroidery books, and this year is going to be a fantastic year for us in publishing embroidery. I'm not actually espousing embroidery this year just because I think we have a terrific list of books coming, but actually because it's a great craft. And even everyone from the Spruce to Martha Stewart to even people like Garnet Hill are talking about how big embroidery is. Even the Financial Times cited 2020 as a year of embroidery. We do have a number of exciting books coming in embroidery this year from leading artists such as Hazel Bloomkamp, who is a fantastic South African designer, Emmy Namira, who does wonderful things with gold work embroidery, and of course Trish Burr and her incredible designs that have been popular for many years, and also the Royal School of Needlework. Um, We are the publisher of the Royal School of Needlework books, and we delight in every new publication that they bring to us. We are also publishing this year a great list of books from the Inspirations magazine, and this is a collection of different types of embroidery. We have three books coming, White Work, Cruel Work, and Stump Work. And they really are inspiring as the name of where they came from. If you're not familiar with Inspirations Magazine, it's the leading magazine in embroidery um, published out of Australia and available really everywhere around the U.S. So amazing, Anne. Thank you so much. And um, is there a coupon code people can check out? Yes. The coupon code will be NEWCRAFT. And that will be available for a 30% discount off of all of our books. And it will be available through our website and for the full year 2020. And where can we check it out? www.searchpressusa.com. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much, Search Press. And now back to my conversation with Wendy. Okay, so you liked them back then, you still like them now. Um, and so did you take like a, a macrame class as one of those um, many crafty classes? I did. And, um, and say, okay, wait, there's something in here for me. Yeah, I took a macrame refresher class. My mom had taught me in the 70s back when it was enjoying one of its early heydays, you know, and we made like a double-sized plant hanger. And But I had forgotten how to get started. I had forgotten how to buy the rope and, and literally how to get a plant hanger started. So I took a refresher class, and within five minutes of the class, of the repetitive motion of nodding, I was like, oh, my God, I remember how good this feels. I love this. And so then I just went really, really deep. And just started doing as much macrame as I could and making all of the beginner projects that everybody else makes, you know, a plant hanger, a wall hanging that looks like everybody else's, <laughs> um, and various projects. And, and by the um, way, like you were so like good timing, right? Because everyone was doing macrame, um, right? It's everywhere. It's kind of enjoying another resurgence. And uh, I mean, I don't know what your Instagram feed looks like, but mine is just yeah, it kind of went macrame crazy and like, um, yeah, yeah and, and like weaving crazy. Yeah, for sure. So after um, 
about a year of being really immersed in macrame, I started looking for something else. So I had already found some success with a hanging pendant lamp, which I christened the Helix Light, which uses a very basic spiral macrame knot that's one of the beginner knots that everybody knows. So I found some success with that and I was selling it as a product, quote unquote, air quote. So a couple of things happened. One, I was I was starting to realize that I didn't love making products. I didn't love the business of having a product-based business because when you have a product-based business, it's all about repetition and the inevitable boredom that comes from that. And it's about packaging and customer relations and fulfillment and your website and all of these things and having, you know, an online shop, all of these things that I frankly wasn't interested in. And I know that there are people that are energized by having to solve those kinds of challenges, but I wasn't. So I was starting to feel really fatigued by having this one macrame product. And the other thing that happened at the same time, and this was the beginning of 2016, I had this light bulb moment one day where I realized, you know, I was looking at my work and and noticing that it did look like everybody else's. And I thought, why is that? And then I, something kind of clicked and I realized that macrame is um, macrame knots are, there are only two or three knots that most macrame artists use um, just in repeated combinations, different combinations each time, but it's really a very small number of knots. And so in that moment, I realized, oh my God, I should just learn more knots and that will bring more variety to my work. Sometimes I liken it to a painter only having three colors. It's not enough, right? Or if you're a guitarist and you only know three chords, it's really not enough. So I felt like I was starting to feel constrained by the limited number of knots that macrame uses. And in that light bulb moment, I thought, oh, I should just learn more of them. And oh my God, I have all those books upstairs that I've never opened. I have knotting books. I can start today. Right. Absolutely. So that's what led to this um, project, the year of knots, I'm assuming. So, um, so tell us kind of, um, what this project consisted of, what the rules are, because I think when you do a project, it's going to be something you do every day for a year. You need rules that confine it and sort of, leeway, right, for the days when Mm, you get sick mm -hmm. or (laughs) just get tired and can't do it, um, sort of how it ends up um, working. And um, yeah, just kind of tell us about the results of it and what happens with it. Yeah. 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 These are such good questions, Abby. This is why I was so excited to be interviewed (laughs) by you because you completely get it. And you, yeah. Anyway, um, what was it like? So Also in that light bulb moment when I had the thought that I would learn um, all of the knots, um, the program of how I would do it literally came to me in a second too. And I didn't really believe in light bulb moments before that I had one, but it was like that. So I realized, oh my God, I'll learn all of the knots that I can. And it was January 4th when I had this this light bulb idea. And I was already familiar with folks who had done year-long projects on Instagram before. So the, you know, the idea was not original to me, but the content was. So I thought, well, I'll learn one new knot every day and I'll post it on Instagram just to keep myself accountable and to find my people to see if there's anybody else interested in this. And in that way, I'll learn. 
So I approached it as a project in self-education. I had no idea that by the end of the year, the piece would hold together on the wall as 366 separate knots equals one major artwork. I had no idea that was not my goal. I simply wanted to learn the same way we would learn a new language. First of all, did you feel like I'm going to use the same chord all the time? And yes. when, when did you decide to put them up on the wall? Yeah, that's a great question too. So um, also in that light bulb moment when I decided I would learn one new knot every day and post it to Instagram, I also instantly sort of intuited all of the project's constraints that I would make them with the same rope every day um, because it's not about the rope, right? It's about the lines of the knot. And I would photo make them in white rope and photograph them on a white background because, again, the work was not about color. It was about line. So I didn't want to distract in any way. And I knew that that would make a really um, consistent, beautiful uh, feed on social media. And I did, I did nail them to the wall every day because at this time I was working out of my living room. I had no studio and literally like no tabletop. I would sit on my white shag carpet in my living room. And so the wall was the only empty place. So from day one, I not, I would nail them to the wall. And after a couple of months, when I had um, a hefty enough selection, like 30 or 40 knots, I realized, oh my God, this is going to be a piece. This is going to be a beautiful wall-sized work of art. Okay. And so then you did move into a studio partway through that year, correct? I did. I did. I moved into my first studio sort of halfway. I was, I was invited to squat in a studio here in San Francisco. And so it didn't really, ha it had one wall instead of four walls. So I covered that wall with the knots and, and that was, it gave it a place to grow. Okay. It was wonderful. And then you, some of the like knots needed like a support though, right? Like they, mm -hmm. like, or, yeah. um, and did you buy special nails for them or like, and the ones that needed a little bit of a support, did you build a special, like, I don't know what they are, kind of like a hook yeah. or something? Yeah, that's a great question. So I use, I just went to the hardware store and found the prettiest nails I could find, which are those copper, I don't know if they're, I think maybe they're roofing nails, but you can find these really beautiful copper nails. So I just was consistent. So I just use those. And um, the knots that you're talking about are hitches. So there are more than 4,000 documented knots in the world. And, you know, mathematicians tell us that there's actually an infinite number possible, but there are more than 4,000 documented and they get organized into different families. And one of the largest families are, are known as hitches and hitches are knots that are required to be made around something in order for them to be hitches. So um, the clove hitch, which is, or the lark's head knot, which uh, so many macrame artists are familiar with, it's the knot that they make around the branch or the rail at the top of their macrame wall hanging, right? Those are hitches. So in my, in the year of knots, I needed to demonstrate hitches because it's such a huge family. And in those cases, I either used a piece of wood or I just cut a little piece of copper plumbing piping in order to give, um, in order to supply the hitch with the object that it needed to wrap around. Okay. And then at the end of the year, well, the, the whole thing was on this wall in your studio and then it became an installation. And as you said, you didn't want to make products like the, the pendant lamp anymore and sell that, but you ended up becoming basically an installation artist instead. Um, and this became an installation that was installed at Facebook, but you actually replicated the whole thing. So it's not the, not the actual, um, year of knots, knots, but a new set. Um, and how did that come to be? How did you connect with the folks at Facebook? 
Oh, that's a good question. So, um, so yeah, so once I had completed the year of knots, I was contacted by lots of press, like folks wanted to write about it and, and sort of opportunities started coming out of the woodwork. I mean, it's how I got my book deal, which is endlessly unbelievable to me. Anyway, Facebook found me online through a friend's gallery, which is now closed, unfortunately, so I won't mention them. But they found me online. They, Facebook has an incredible program of uh, an artist in residency program. Do you know about it, Abby? Have no, you heard I don't. About this? No. Oh, my God. It's called Facebook Air Artist in Residency Program. And, you know, they have hundreds of offices around the world. And everywhere you look when you go to the offices, I mean, in the corners, in the bathrooms, in the stairwells, every available wall surface is covered with art. And the art is usually made by a lo- an artist local to that Facebook office. And they're incredibly support. I mean, they basically said, here's the wall, what would you like to do? You know, I told them what my fee was, they said, boy, that's more than we usually pay. But okay. (laughs) I mean, they're incredibly generous. I mean, say, say what you want about Facebook's privacy issues and all of that. But they are incredibly generous and supportive to artists. Um, in the real world, as far as I've been able to see. Wow. Okay. So I proposed to them um, three different installations on this very long, 30-foot-long wall. And one of them was to replicate the Year of Knots, and that was the one that they chose. And by the way, I think in art terms, what it is is uh, the original is in my studio, and it will never leave. I'll never sell it. So that's called the Artist Proof. And then the edition that Facebook commissioned is called the First Edition. Got it. And so for if I were to make another edition of the Year of knots, it would be the second edition. I see. Yeah, right. That totally makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. And so, um, and, and you really, would you really say that sharing the year of knots in progress, as well as the finished piece on Instagram is what led to some of these opportunities, both this Facebook one, and we're going to talk about the book in a few minutes. And maybe there were other things as well that I um, am not talking about yet or don't know about. Um, but would you credit the sharing yeah. on Instagram for the, for those opportunities? Um, partially, yeah. I mean, you know, part of what what sharing the project as it unfolded on social media, what that gave the work was so much added dimension. It meant that the work became a time-based work and a time-based performance in a way. Um, It meant that it unfolded over the course of a year. So if I had just unveiled the year of knots, you know, after keeping it secret for a year, the impact would not have been as large. And the notion of process and work in progress would not have been an element of it at all. But I wanted process to be an element of it. I'm very open with sharing parts of my process, because the journey that I was taking was sort of a journey to figuring out what I wanted to do next. Now I realize that it was the journey to becoming an artist, where I could, you know, call myself an artist without being embarrassed or feeling like I'm an imposter. So all of that stuff around process was interesting to me. So I thought, well, I'm going to share it. Also, and this is something I learned from the record store, is when you share that stuff, you're sending out a flare. I mean, not to this totally esoteric, very nerdy, geeky, weird thing to be into. And frankly, most of the people into them are old white men in England. (laughs) So it was my way of finding sort of the other freaks like me. And that's something that I learned in the record store, too, you know, where we were a tiny independent record store, but our best customers were from Finland and Russia and, you know, Japan it was a way of finding like-minded people across oceans. 
Absolutely. Okay. Wonderful. I think that's great. And I, um, I, I think that, um, uh, you know, not being afraid to share and, um, and, and put your work out there on Instagram is something that, um, that I think is really an important step here. So, and talk a little yeah. bit about how Abrams found you as well. Um, and how, how this led to a book and also sort of what the book is about. Um, is it a how to yeah. book? Um, is it a creativity book or what is the book? It's both. You're absolutely right. <laughs> so I think Abrams found me again, right soon after the year of knots, um, finished. So at the end of 2016, early 2017, I got a lot of press right around that time, as I had mentioned. And I think, you know, I think that's what book publishers do is sort of look for interesting, great ideas. So I was approached by several publishers, and I had no idea about the book world. It was a world that I had never, you know, worked within before. So I couldn't tell a good, you know, deal from a bad one. And I couldn't, I didn't know what makes a good publisher and what makes a bad one kind of thing. So long story short, I found an agent and she really held my hand she had more than 25 years experience in the industry and really held my hand and said, this is how you do it. You write a proposal. We take the book to only the publishers who have a track record of making beautiful books of the type that you're looking to make. And so we went through that whole process. Okay, great. And, and so what did, what kind of book were you interested in oh, making yeah. and what kind of yeah. book did you end up making? Yeah. Yeah. So so the publishers really wanted a how-to book. They wanted a straight-up how-to book with projects. Yeah, um, of course, sort of because like, that's what they always want. Every publisher always, always want. wants that, yes. Well, it's an easy sell. And frankly, that's why I think workshops now in the real world are such a big thing now, too. Like, if you feel like you're going to learn something from buying a session in a workshop or buying a book, then it's a no-brainer that you'll spend the money. It's worth the money, right? And so I was a little bit interested in teaching how to tie knots. But what I was most interested in was telling the story of how that year of knots completely and utterly changed my life. It profoundly changed my life. And frankly, that's the question that I get asked the most is how did you become an artist? And how did you, you know, how do you do it? What does your day to day to day look like? All of those questions. So I knew, even though publishers may not have known, that there was a hunger for that kind of information. So the proposal that I made said, let's do a hybrid. You know, let me tell some stories about with very filled with very practical advice about how I did this and my journey. And then we'll sprinkle in some not tutorials here and there. I am a big um, home cook. So I really love I collect cookbooks. And I'm sure you've seen there are a lot of cookbooks now that sort of do the same thing, right? Where half the book is talking about the chef and where they came from and what their philosophy is, and how they got to where they are. And then they sprinkle in some recipes, too. So I was kind of coming from that angle. Yeah, I think about Molly Weisenberg's book, um, which mm-hmm. does that. And I loved that book. I read that book in, right. an air, in an airport waiting for a flight. I read the whole book. Um, and I <laughs> love, yeah, I mean, I, I did really, really love that book. And it has recipes in it. And I cook from that book as well. So um, it's like a little bit of both. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and I know I went to um, borrow your book from my library, and there are mm. 72 holds on it. So um, oh. I, <laughs> I think it's wow. popular. Um, so that's a good sign. Um, so yeah, that, that says something about it. Um, so that makes uh, me feel so good. Thank right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I wondered how you're I mean, you've gotten some other really big installations after I, I, I'm assuming that that Facebook one 
the first edition of um, of your year of knots was the first installation, sort of big installation outside of your your home studio. Um, and you've gotten some other really neat ones after that. And were those other ones ones that you sought out or where you were contacted or sort of how did you grow, I guess, the installation oh, yeah, side of your art practice? And because um, that seems to be kind of the the path you're pursuing now as an artist. That's such a great question. Thank you for asking it. Yeah. So uh, up until this year, and because this year I have a plan to, to do something else, but up until this year, I've been very, um, I've been kind of, well, passive, well, passive isn't the right word, but I've, I've been responsive. So I wait for opportunities to come to me and then I try to ascertain whether or not it's a great opportunity or not. And then I do them or not kind of thing. So most of my clients are interior designers and architects working on either residential projects or, you know, big hospitality projects. And they all find me because interior designers and architects have their finger on the pulse. They always know what's going on and they're just sort of hungry for looking for folks that they want to work with. So that's been great. And part of it, I think, is my large Instagram following, relatively large, I guess. Yeah. Um, folks find me that way. And I've also gotten a ton of press. And for that, I, I've worked with close with a small boutique PR firm here in California. Yeah, and I was going um, to ask you about that. that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. you are um, my first podcast guest who works with a publicist. And yeah. I was going to ask you about that because I just thought oh, it was yeah. really fascinating um, when I reached out and I was like, hey, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And it was a publicist who responded. So talk to me a little bit about yeah. what that's been like and sort of how um, yeah. how that's helped you to grow your business. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I was such a punk rocker for so many years that I always was so suspicious of PR and getting any kind of professional help, you know, to do what you want to do. And I thought having a PR person was like the most unpunk rock thing that you could possibly do. <laughs> I, I felt like it was cheating or that you're like buying coverage and it's none of those things. And I realize that now I was um, in the studio one day with my assistant, Hannah, who is a super accomplished like musician and filmmaker um, in her own right. And whenever she releases a new album, she always hires a publicist because you have to, I mean, there's so much stuff out there in the world. Like, how are you going to get your work out into the world so that people can hear it? Um, And so what I realized, she's like, you can do it, Wendy. (laughs) I thought it was okay. So, um, What I realized is that every time I get a piece of press, it brings three or four new clients my way. And I mean, serious art collectors or serious like installation projects that are great opportunities for me and they move the needle for me. So it's been a very practical decision to continue working with a publicity team because again, every time it, it literally is my, it's my marketing, right? It's my way of bringing customers to me and it's absolutely worked. It's not, it's not cheap, but my work is, is not cheap either. And so it's paid for itself. Like, you know, exponentially many, many times over. So it's worth it for me. And I realize that not everybody, everybody can do it. But for me, it's just a practical decision. Like I knew that my customers read the awesome magazines that we all read, right? Everything from Martha Stewart to Lux magazine or Sunset or Dwell. I know that my customers read those, but I didn't have the time or the energy to get to know all of the editors at these magazines. Who has that kind of time? Yeah. And um, to write like a perfectly catered pitch or I mean, do they actually like write? I don't know. What what do they send them? Do they write like an article or? Very, very, no, no. They just sort of, um, 
they pitch angles. Okay. Um, so for example, last year when I was working with the PR team, the angle was all about my book and how you can change your life in the space of a year with the power of daily practice. So that was sort of the message, right? Before that, we were talking about Wendy as as straight up artist, you know, making artwork kind of thing. But my personal journey was not really part of it. I see. But last year it was because the book came out. And in the book, I do tell that personal story. So yeah, it's been a really, it was, it was a very practical decision I made that this is how I'm going to invest in this so that clients come, clients can find me and hear about me and it's worked. Wow. That's great. And so I think it, it would maybe be recommended for somebody who, um, whose work is equally high end, I guess is what I would say. Like if you are, you know, if your products are not, if it's not going to pay off, right, then it maybe isn't worth doing. But if it, if it well, you know. Well, that's, a, that's yes, if you look at it one way. But on the other hand, it doesn't have to mean that your work is high end. You might have a product-based business where your product is $20, but you want to sell a million of them. Correct. And in that case, right. that case, it might also make sense to do it. It just depends on who they're pitching and how it's yeah. going to drive those sales. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. And the other and the other thing is that um part of the part of the goal with any marketing plan whether you're, you know, an individual artist or like a new startup or a big company or whatever is is just to remain top of mind um for anyone who might need what what it is that you sell, right? So you know, if I need a new pair of glasses, of course, I think Warby Parker because they're just sort of everywhere now, right? They're top of mind for us. Right. Um, that's that's part of it. And this is one of the things that I learned at Apple. One of the many things that working at Apple taught me was that you don't start a new business without having some plan for getting your work out there into the world. I think that it's uh, wishful thinking to think that you can just like make beautiful work and that the world is somehow going to take notice. Like you have to take responsibility for putting it out there into the world, whether and, you know, a very um, in a big way or in a very you know small way like just sharing on Instagram can be incredibly powerful but you're responsible for that and you know if someone wants to make a living as an artist but they want to pretend that it's not a business they're just fooling themselves like it is a business if you want to make a living at it absolutely so you need to think a little bit not like it takes over your life but you do need to think a little bit about how what are some practical ways that I can get my work out there into the world and thus bring more opportunities to me Yes, absolutely. Taking charge and taking control and ownership of that part of your job, because it is part of your job, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, I would love to shift gears a little bit. Um, and talk a little bit about you as a, as a person. Um, and I, I have noticed that, um, you take sort of a special care in what you like to wear. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little <laughs> bit about your clothes and your personal style. Um, and yeah, cause I think you, whenever I see you photographed, you are always wearing something sort of interesting. Um, and I, I love like certain, you wear certain colors and certain shapes of clothes. When it comes to clothing, I'm, um, well, there's so many things to say, but some of the main things are, I always try to buy from designers who I either know personally or are women or are 
you know, people that you can really get behind supporting um, because it adds an extra level of meaning to the garment, right? It's not just a pretty garment that you look good in, but there's meaning behind it. You know who made it or you love the story of the person who made it and what they stand for too. So it becomes part of a larger sort of story that you're telling by wearing that piece of clothing. So like for, and, and then I love the Japanese designers because they're so not about looking sexy, but about having a concept or an intellectual idea and invoking that in the clothing, invoking that in a material form. And I find that super fascinating. So like one of my favorite designers now is, is or labels is Sakai. And it's a Japanese woman who worked at Comme des Garçons for many years. She designs this label called Sakai. And she's kind of known for doing these crazy articles of clothing where the front is one thing and the back is another thing. So like the front will be a t-shirt and the back will be like a pleated silk chiffon blouse and it'll be one garment. They're crazy. Wow. I love them. That's yeah. super cool. Yeah. Um, all right. I'm going to have to link to that. That sounds really, really cool. And the other, mm-hmm. only other thing I wanted to say um, before we get to recommendations is about um, you've lived, do you still live in the mission, in the mission district? I do still live in the mission district. And you've lived there um, for 30 years or so. Is that right? Yeah, I moved to San Francisco for college and I, I just never left. Okay, so, so how has I, it changed in the time that oh. you've been there? I'm just wondering, it, like, what do you still like about it? Well, it's very different. It's It used to be, you know, I would walk down the main street in the Mission, which is Valencia Street, and know every per- say hello to every person that I passed and every store owner and every storefront. And it's not like that anymore. It's become a little more faceless. Part of that is that there are more young people here. You know, we're like the where, you know, the mission is sort of the hippest neighborhood in San Francisco. So it is where all of the young people are going to come. And right now, when you say young people in San Francisco, you basically mean like tech folks that have moved here to kind of make a living and to start their careers. I'm not that person anymore. I'm 52. Um, but it's still the most, you know, colorful, vibrant neighborhood in the city. And and I will never stop loving it for that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow um, there are some artists that are hanging on. There are some very uh, richly historied um, artist collective and cooperatives that own buildings here in San Francisco and here in the Mission that are are going strong um, and that provide, you know, low cost housing to artists in perpetuity. And um, there's still a community of folks that that support it. And San Francisco has a really, really strong and very um, well-funded public art program here. That's good to know because I know it's really changed and become extremely expensive and living in San Francisco. San Francisco has become extremely expensive as well. It's the most expensive city in the country, which is another reason that I have to be, I have to balance out um, my aesthetic curiosity and experimentalism with practicality. Yeah. Because <laughs> you have to be practical. You can't be impractical and live in San Francisco, sadly, yeah. Yeah. anymore. Yeah, like 100%. Um, okay, so we're going to get to your list. Um, the first one is actually quite a few of yours are video games. I think all three of them, which is fascinating. Um, so I like that, though. So the first one is called, I think it's called Gris, maybe, if that's the French pronunciation. Um, and so tell us about this game. Oh, do you really want to hear about my my video game obsession? I, I guess you do. Um, so I'm obsessed with video games, and um, uh, just a little backstory. So, um, you know, video games have a bad rap, right? They they're you know 
that you feel like they're all about guns and shooting people and aggression and violence. And maybe that's true for a certain sector of games, certainly the majority of them when they were being designed and made for like young white men kind of thing, right? Young men. But games have changed. And the advent of um, mobile devices like iPad and iPhone have absolutely contributed to that where, you know, the largest, I think the fastest growing demographic of gamers in the world are women in our 40s. And that's because we all have a gaming device in our pockets now. It's the iPhone. And so increasingly, you're seeing games that are made for, sorry if this is sounding like a lecture, but it kind of bears saying, like increasingly, you're seeing games that are designed by women or designed for experiences other than like get your heart racing, um, violent kind of stuff. It's more about um, creating emotions of beauty and togetherness and companionship and awe and immersion in, um, you know, in, in serene environments, that kind of thing. So you're seeing these games that are literally art. I believe that they are art. They're interactive art experiences. That's super so cool. The, yeah. Yeah. So those are the games that I love. Um, Gree came out this year and I put it there, I think, because I was playing it right at the time that you were asking these questions. <laughs> and it is so fucking beautiful. It is the entire thing is done. The art style was done by, I think, a Spanish artist and he's a watercolor artist. So he draws these like beautiful girls who look vaguely like they're from the 60s with like these pretty little bob, like fluffy bob haircuts. That's the main character. And um, the entire thing is like a super transparent wash of watercolor. So the game is gorgeous while you're playing it and it's also you know interactive it's a puzzle game it falls into the puzzle genre but there are moments where she's flying and your heart just soars with her I mean it's so beautiful wow okay so I have three daughters and they do like to play games um and so I'm gonna ask them if they'll check them out these sound really cool and the next one is called yeah manifold garden Oh, yeah. I put that one in also because it came out this year. So it feels really fresh. I mean, I have a list as long as my arm. I bet. It sounds like you've got some really good people should follow up because there's probably some more. Okay. But tell us about this one. Manifold Garden is so amazing because um, as I became obsessed with it, and it took me, I think, a couple of weeks to finish the game. So it was a long obsession. I started uh, wondering, like, who was the the, the maker? So it was an indie um, game developer. It was not developed by some massive, you know, known name game development house. It was developed by an installation artist who lives in Chicago. And he does physical, you know, in- installations and sculptural installations in the world and this was his first game and the game is so beautiful it is a moving escher drawing so when you're playing it it's like you're in an escher drawing you know with the stairs yeah and and so the the main mechanic in the game is that you can swipe across your ipad and change the view sort of like you can imagine like in those escher stairs like if you jump from one staircase to another and they're at 90 degrees to each other your whole your whole sort of what you can see would change. So the mechanic in the game is that you can swipe to see the different views. Um, but it's so beautiful in the use of co- there's just four primary colors in the game plus black. It's so gorgeous. Okay. Wow. And it's complete 
And part of what I love about games is that they're completely immersive, right? Right. And that's, you know, and there's a through line between that and and the fact that I like to make immersive sculptures and environments in my own artwork that you can get lost in or that you can feel a sense of awe in. The same way that we feel a sense of awe when we walk into a cathedral is the same sense of awe that, you know, that awe kind of feeling. I'd like to, I'd love it if my work evoked that in some, you know, proportionate way, similar way. And it's the same feeling that you get when you play video games where they are these immersive environments that you can love being immersed in. Right. Because these these particular ones are like dropped into artwork. Right. Yeah. Okay. And the last one is called Journey. Oh, yeah. Journey. So this is the game that really showed me that games are art. Um, And it was, I think it was made seven or eight years ago. And um, here's the thing about Journey. So there are there's no instructions, you know, there's no tutorial, there's no guns, there's no talking. Um, all you do is you're this character and you're dropped into this sort of desert sand dune area and you look around and you see a mountain in the distance. And it, the mountain sort of looks like um, Hokusai's views of Mount Fuji, you know, those Japanese block yeah. prints. Yeah. It's, so it's gorgeous. So it's totally gorgeous. And you just start moving towards it. No one told you to do that, but you just sort of instinctively start moving towards it. And what you discover throughout the course of the game is that it's a, it's a metaphor for the journey of life. So there's peaks and valleys and some underground areas where you might feel a little bit depressed. And then there's, you know, places where you're soaring in the sky and you feel happy. So the game is literally sort of a um, the game's environment and what it depicts is a um, a metaphor for life. And the other thing about the game that just gives me chills when I think about it is you're playing alone the whole time. It's totally gorgeous, but once in a while you'll see a character in the distance, and it and of course you get very excited. Like I thought I was alone in this game, and you run up to them, and you can't you can't um beat each other up there's the game doesn't encourage you to do that anyway the only thing you can do is when you touch the other character you both power each other up so that you can fly together so in other words every interaction you have with another person in the game is positive oh. that's built into the mechanic of the game so how beautiful is that that's just lovely. taken right there yeah that the only interaction you can have is positive and what you realize after you study the game for a while is that that other person that you see in the game is not an ai it's another other real person playing somewhere else in the world um, at the same time as you. And the game is so skillfully designed that it makes you want to behave in this um, beneficent way towards the other person. You want to help each other. You want to hold hands and travel together. The game is so beautifully designed that it makes you want to do that. So like the first time I played it, I started crying. It was so profoundly emotional and beautiful. Wow. These are really interesting games to check out and really like nothing else I had heard of before. So um, thank you for telling us about them. Um, These are really interesting recommendations and I appreciate them so much. So um, that's great. Um, Well, Lindy, this has been a really terrific conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. It was great talking with you. Oh, Abby, I feel like I talked over you and at you for so long. Oh, no. Thank you for being <laughs> such a good listener and asking the kinds of questions that I could just talk endlessly about and answering. Thank you very much. And you've been listening to the Craft Industry Alliance podcast. I'm Abby Glassenberg. Today's episode was sponsored by Search Press. Search Press is proud to sponsor this podcast and delighted to bring you wonderful craft books. As an independent, family-owned publisher, 
Search Press books are supplied through art and craft retailers in the United States and Canada. Search Press books are available through Summer Street Associates and are distributed by Penguin Random House. Thank you so much, Search Press. Craft Industry Alliance is a community for craft professionals, and when you become a member of Craft Industry Alliance, you get in-depth coverage of craft industry news, the opportunity to connect with fellow professionals for advice and support, and access to an educational library filled with ideas, tools, and resources to help you as you build your business. So join us at craftindustryalliance.org. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.